In Isaiah 55, verse 8, the Lord declares, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we don't have to be reading the Bible very long before we appreciate how true that revelation is. The thing is, though, we often resist God's truth. His ways and thoughts are difficult to reconcile to our finite human perspective. Case in point, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. See, that goes against the grain. And why is the Christian to consider facing many kinds of trials pure joy? Verse 3, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature or perfect and complete, not lacking anything. So picture in your mind's eye a set of balance scales. On one side of the balance, we have the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Illness. Devastating loss, financial reversal, family breakup, disease, violence, natural disaster, domestic abuse, war. On the other side, we have trial-forged, persevering Christian faith. A persevering faith that finishes its work in eschatological perfection. When God's people are perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Life that is in the consummated splendor of the new heavens and new earth. The heritage of all believers in Jesus Christ. Those are what's in the scales. How does it balance out? There is no comparison, is there? There is no comparison. Biblically speaking, the afflictions of this life don't even register. 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Loved ones, a trial-forged, persevering faith is worth any cost, any affliction, any hardship. At least, it is if we're thinking biblically. It's certainly worth it in God's eyes. It's why he sovereignly brings the trial into our life. Verse 12 of James chapter 1. Blessed, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That is the end goal every believer must bear in mind. However, if our highest goals in life, our greatest aspirations are merely temporary, creature comforts, if our eyes aren't on the ultimate goal, the ultimate prize, the crown of eternal life, then verses 2 and three and four are pretty much incomprehensible, aren't they? They make no sense. 
No, this kind of evaluation of priorities only makes sense if our highest goals in life include growth in Christian character. Brother, sister, is growth in Christian character amongst your highest goals? What takes priority in your life? Comfort or holiness? Because if our life priorities aren't aligned with the priorities of Holy Scripture, if instead we're looking at existence from an unbiblical perspective, a sub-biblical perspective, a life where the very treasures of our heart turn on achieving straight A's, having money, worldly success, fame, marital and family happiness, a good life for our children, good health, an exciting retirement. If it's to those things we owe our highest allegiance, then there can't be joy in the midst of trials. The trial is depriving us of what we already are delighting in the most. It's depriving us of what makes life sing. What we learned last week, and what James teaches us again today, is that when Christians endure any difficulty in life, any trial that may threaten our faithfulness to Jesus Christ, there is always an attending blessing. Trial and blessing. One follows the other in God's plan, just as day follows night. Every time, no matter the nature of the trial. Trial and blessing. It may be physical illness, financial reversal, The ending of a relationship, the death of a loved one, failure at school, it doesn't matter. As we respond to the adversity in a biblical fashion, as we let perseverance finish its work, as we pray to God for wisdom, God works through the trial to bless us. He forges in that crucible of adversity a persevering faith, purified of all dross. He's fitting us, brothers and sisters, for the crown of eternal life. That's how he does it. The thing is, that sort of godliness and biblical conformity isn't something we just naturally drift into. James 1 is a hard text. This is hard teaching. It's difficult to put this into practice, and here's why. Because every trial, every affliction carries with it not only a potential blessing, but also an attending temptation, an inner enticement to sin, an enticement to rebel against God, to to compromise biblical faithfulness. So yes, the various trials Christians meet in life can produce, it can produce spiritual maturity and lead to God's reward of eternal life if they are endured in faith. But those same hardships can have a harmful effect if they're met with unbiblical attitudes. It can even lead to death, eternal death, hell. For example, just consider the trial of of financial difficulties. I don't need to tell you what those are, fellow Torontonians. Uh, Inflation, recession, soaring grocery bills, gas prices, higher interest rates, stratospheric rental costs, unemployment, poor investments. Now, financial hardship can foster a greater dependence upon God. It can foster a, a richer prayer life. A trusting acceptance of God's providence. 
a greater contentment with the things the Lord has provided. An eager, prayerful expectation as to how the Lord will meet our needs and provide us with our daily bread. Right? That's all wrapped up with increasing Christian maturity. Or financial difficulties can tempt us to question God's providence in our lives. It can cause us to worry and be anxious. We can, we can begin to doubt God's goodness, his care for us. It can lead to a lack of trust. It, it can produce covetousness. We can be tempted to lie and cheat in various ways to get more money. It can lead to a prayer life that sounds like a three-year-old who only lives in the present. Now, now, now. It can rob us of patience and waiting on the Lord for his perfect timing. Or maybe we'll stop praying altogether. Testing always includes temptation. And so persevering under trial, verse 12, demands that we overcome temptation. And one such temptation, and this is the temptation that James brings to our attention in our second point in our bulletins today, is to blame God for the enticement to sin that accompanies the testing that he sovereignly brings our way. We blame God. You're to blame for this, God. You made me this way. You sovereignly placed me in these crazy trying circumstances. So you're partly to blame for my enticement to sin. But James won't allow that. No, no, God is the God of everything good. He himself is not tempted by sin, and he himself tempts no one. God's not the problem. People are the problem because we succumb to temptation due to our own evil desires. In fact, as our third point makes clear, far from ever tempting us to sin, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. But as we see in our first point, in the moment of testing, in the trial, in the hardship, in the pain, it's easy for Christians not to acknowledge God's goodness. That we are, in fact, blessed. Because we're not looking at life from an eschatological perspective, a last things perspective. We're wearing blinkers, right? Like time blinkers. We just, it's the here and now. We can't see past our nose. We only see the here and now. We've taken our eyes off eternity, and we're like that three-year-old saying, now, now, now. And so we lose sight of the fact that once we pass the test, God in his goodness will give us the crown of life. And the word crown here, is used in the sense of a prize that's won. It's like a medal. Um, In the first century, a laurel wreath was placed on the head of the winner of an athletic competition. That's the kind of crown that James has in mind. The prize Christians win, the reward all those who love God receive for faithfully enduring trials and temptations to the very end is the promised crown of life, the crown which is life, eternal life. Jesus says the same thing. In Revelation 2.10, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Christian, is the promise of heaven's reward spurring you on to greater faithfulness in the midst of your God-sanctioned, faith-refining adversity? Or, Are you beginning to doubt God's goodness in the midst of your affliction?
Pastor John, you have no idea what this last year has been like for me. This has been the hardest time of my life. What in the world is God doing? I'm beginning to feel like God's punching bag. No, Christian, you must resist the temptation to think that way, to feel that way. You're impugning God's character. Don't you see? God is refining you. He's strengthening your faith, and he's giving you grace to persevere that you might receive the crown of eternal life. The trial, whatever it is, whatever it is, it is a blessing. It's an opportunity for faithfulness. It's an opportunity to grow in Christian character, an opportunity to reflect the very glory of God. Trials strengthen our faith. They produce perseverance, and ultimately, they result in our enjoying the blessings that you have in yours. So, Christian, thank God for your adversity. Thank God for trials. Thank God for sickness. Thank God when things at church aren't 100% to your satisfaction. Thank God for a difficult marriage. Thank God for singleness. Thank God for economic hardship. It's all a matter of perspective. Don't succumb to the temptation of looking at your life sub-biblically. Pray to God for wisdom, as we looked at last week. Keep your eyes on the prize, on your reward, the crown of eternal life. You must. That will motivate you to spiritual integrity when faced with temptation not to persevere. When you're tempted to give up, cash in your chips, and abandon the faith. But there's another way of looking at verse 12. Verse 12 really is telling us two things. The first is that, yes, Christians can acknowledge God's goodness in testing because we know we're going to be blessed with life after passing the test. But also, secondly, that perseverance is necessary, a necessary ingredient of genuine Christianity. Biblical faith, by definition, is an obedient, persevering faith. Anything less is Satan's counterfeit. It's a fake faith. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. D.A. Carson writes this, A real Christian on the long haul sticks. He or she perseveres. There may be ups and downs. There may be special victories or temporary defeats. But precisely because the one who has begun a good work in us completes it, real Christians stick. With every trial comes a temptation. And the ultimate temptation in a trial is to abandon the faith entirely. To forsake the crown of life. To give up 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the marathon. Remember the parable of the soils. A good beginning does not guarantee a good ending. But real Christians continue to be those who love God, verse 12. Which means when we face trials, we must perceive the challenge for which God's grace equips us. The challenge is always to press on, to press on, knowing full well that the ultimate reward is the crown of life, of eternal life. It's the consummated splendor of life in the new heavens and new earth. We need to remind ourselves of that and each other. That's biblical truth that must be rehearsed to our hearts again and again and again over our Christian pilgrimage. Okay, we're going to move to our second point now. But before we do, I need to make a confession. 
something I've always shown quite a talent for is evading responsibility, which is just another way of speaking of self-justification. Uh, I have a thousand excuses at hand to legitimize my selfish, lazy, wrong-headed, sinful behavior. Uh, if you see a fault in me, it's easy for me to come back with reasoned, compelling argumentation as to why the fault is not my own. Um, there's always extenuating circumstances. And, and what you might perceive as weakness and sin is, in fact, strength and righteousness. And I'm not too embarrassed to admit this in public. It's something we're all prone to, after all. And the Bible says that we come by it naturally. Uh, when we act this way, when we evade responsibility, we're just imitating our first parents in the garden, aren't we? Adam blamed God for creating the woman who tempted him to sin before blaming the woman herself. And Eve blamed the serpent who deceived her. So look at point number two in your bulletin. Christians should not blame God for temptation because we and not God are the problem. Verse 13. When tempted and tested is probably a better word there. The root word behind test or trial and behind temptation is the same in Greek. In context alone actually determines the exact shading that we give it. So I think it's better when you say when tested... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, don't be confused by James's omission of Satan as a source of temptation here. James certainly isn't denying the role of the demonic realm in tempting God's image bearers to defy the living God. In, in chapter 4, verse 7, he will write, Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So he's not denying the demonic realm. Uh, but this purpose here, his purpose here in, in chapter 1, is to highlight individual human responsibility for sin. James wants to place the responsibility for sin and for temptation squarely on the shoulders of each human being. Friends, the Bible never allows us to say the devil made me do it. No, we're responsible. Nor can we ever say God made me this way. He's really the one to blame, or at least he should share in some of the blame. Why would he create me with this way if he didn't expect me to act on it? You know, God created me with a fiery temper. It's in my DNA because I'm Sicilian. I'm Irish, right? Am I to blame for that? Or, look, God created me full of illness and disease. Of course I'm going to be tempted to envy and covet other people's good health. How can God blame me for envying others who just glide so helpfully through life? God is in some measure at fault. I'd be a good Christian who never complained if God had not cursed me from the get-go with these medical afflictions. Or, God created me same-sex attracted, and I need love. I need companionship. I need sex. We all do. We're human. What am I supposed to do? Be celibate the rest of my life? Doesn't God need to own up to his fair share in the responsibility for my sin, if it really is sin, since he made me this way? Do you see how easy it is to be deceived and to blame God for our sin? 
Here I am, paralyzed from the waist down from a car accident. And now I'm depressed. I'm unthankful, ungrateful, filled with fear and dread. But if God hadn't sovereignly brought that car crashing into me, then I wouldn't have all these sins to battle as I sit in my wheelchair. Or how easy is it to say, God hasn't provided me with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I'm lonely. I need companionship. But if I compromise biblical teaching, if I date or cohabit or marry this non-Christian, then I can be happy. But am I really to blame? God has the power to do anything, but he has not provided for me on this front. Or I'm addicted to porn because God hasn't provided me with a wife. I've been praying for years and years and nothing, and so I struggle with lust every day. God is in some measure to blame. I'd be the most faithful, non-porn-viewing husband on planet Earth if God only provided a wife. Or I worry about real estate. God has not provided me with a job that pays me enough to live in this city. And so I'm worried, I'm anxious, and I covet what other brothers and sisters in this church own. I'd be happy with a shack. I'm not greedy. But I look at the market, and it seems to me it's either move to the sticks and own a modest abode or rent in Toronto and never move again, lest we get slammed with crazy rent increases. And so due to God's sovereign providence, I don't give to my local church. How can I? I need to prioritize other goals. Yes, I make bad decisions, spiritually compromised decisions, but my hand is forced. Who can resist God's sovereign will? Speaking for myself, I can see the need for some serious theological refinement in my own life on this matter. It's too easy to blame God in some sense for my sin, both in his creating me a certain way or by his sovereignly bringing difficult circumstances into my life that are so acute, it somehow exonerates me of full responsibility. For example, in my marriage. Folks, let me tell you, I'm a great husband. In my my own sinful, warped, deluded calculations, I'm pretty much 99% perfect. What an absolute joy it must be for Jill to be married to such a man as I. so, So there I am, I'm minding my own business, being my inherently wonderful self, and Jill up and sins against me out of the blue. Maybe she suspects my heart motivation in some matter or another and tells me in a, in a really bad tone of voice. It's harsh and accusing. And so I respond gently and lovingly and with patience. But Jill's rejoinder is anything but. She's really upset. And so I sin right back. And we're in a fight. But surely, if Jill started it, that exonerates me, right, of full responsibility for my sinful action. She started it, the wife that God gave me. That needs to stop. No more deception. No more excuses. Brothers and sisters, James would have all of us examine our lives in the light of this truth. God is not to blame for our sin ever. In any way, we are. Now, this may be new information, but it's something we all need to understand. God tests his people. God tests his people just as he tested Abraham. When he offered him to sacrifice, ordered him to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22.1. Let me just read this text. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. 
sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. See, God is going to strain Abraham's faith and obedience to the uttermost in order to reveal the patriarch's deepest emotional attachment. Is Abraham willing to love God with all of his heart and mind and soul? After all, Isaac is the offspring in whom the promises of land and nationhood and worldwide blessing were to be fulfilled. The miracle child God had given him at the age of 100 and his wife at the age of 90. Now he's saying, sacrifice this son. Who does Abraham love more? His son, his only son, or God? God tested him. In Judges 2.22, we read that God tested the nation of Israel by leaving the people surrounded by pagan nations. Again, God tested King Hezekiah by leaving him to his own devices in his reception of the Babylonian envoy in 2 Chronicles 32.31. So the Bible makes clear God does test his people in the sense that, in the sense that he sovereignly brings us into situations where our willingness to obey him is tested. But he never, ever seeks to induce sin or to destroy the faith of his people, ever. And verse 13 gives the reason why that is so and why a person must never blame God for the temptation in the midst of testing, and it relates to his character. God is a God who himself cannot be tempted with evil, and therefore he cannot tempt others to commit sin. Why? Because he's all good. God is all holy. God can have nothing to do with sin. It's not attractive to him. Sin is infinitely repulsive in his sight. Therefore, God tempts no one. He is not living an inconsistent double life. Deuteronomy 32.4, God is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. 1 John 1.5, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Hebrews 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Christian, the testing God sovereignly brings into your life, it's not in any way for the purpose of causing you to defy your Lord in sin. As we've already seen, that testing serves another purpose entirely, a good purpose. God is not the problem. People are the problem. You are the problem. Because in the midst of the test, we succumb to temptation. And we succumb to temptation due to our own evil desires, our inherent desires, which are evil. And those evil desires, if they're left unchecked, they will lead to death. Not the crown of eternal life, which comes through persevering through trials and testing. Death. Verse 14. But each of you is tempted when you are dragged away by your own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Isn't that a horrifying picture? James is using a fishing metaphor. Just as the bait on the fisherman's hook entices the fish, and once hooked, the fish is dragged away, So our own evil desires 
casts the enticements of sin before us and then hooks us and drags us away when we bite. Now, James doesn't tell us how it is that evil desire might conceive and give birth, but he undoubtedly has in mind the active response of the person who's being tempted. Temptation involves the innate desire toward evil as we're enticed by the superficial attractiveness of sin. And if a person should welcome, rather than resist that temptation, desire conceives. And if not turned away immediately, it produces sin. It gives birth to sin. Which means the temptation itself isn't what's sinful here. Only when desire conceives, only when it is allowed to produce offspring, does sin come into being. And that's really important to understand because many Christians have a sensitive conscience. And they may feel that because they continue to experience temptation, that goes to show that they're bad Christians. That there's something uh, wrong with their sanctification. That in their case, the work of the Holy Spirit is defective. No. Temptation to sin will always, always be part of the Christian experience as it was the experience of the Lord Jesus himself. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Christian, throughout your earthly pilgrimage, you will be tempted, but your Christian maturity, your obedience, your sanctification is not indicated by the infrequency of the temptation itself, but in your not succumbing to temptation. Let me make just a very quick practical excursus here. I hope you find this helpful. Uh, Sometimes temptation to sin comes at us like a tiger. It jumps out at us from the jungle path as we walk walk along, right? So we're all on this jungle path. There's the jungle. The tiger just jumps out. It takes us by surprise. And we have to respond instantly with faithfulness, a faithfulness that's ingrained by force of holy habit. Brothers, we're walking down the street, we're texting our mom. We look up, and there's a beautiful woman dressed in a super tight miniskirt walking right in front of us. That's a tiger temptation, right? We're given no warning. Bam! It's, she's just there. And so we immediately avert our eyes. We respond instantly with faithfulness, a godly obedience, a holy fear that's ingrained by a force of habit. And if you don't know what I'm talking about when I say that, if you can't relate to that at all, brother, you're in trouble. Come talk to me. Lady, someone says something nasty to you at work. The temptation is to say something nasty right back, right? That's a tiger temptation. You're given no warning. Bam, it's just there. But more often than not, we see sin coming down the road at us, and we go out to meet it. If you're a person who gets angry and cranky and argumentative when you don't get enough sleep, that means, Christian, you have a moral obligation to be in bed by 9.30. Stop making excuses. Take personal responsibility for your sin. If you can't behave like a sanctified Christian when you're hungry, then you have a moral obligation to carry a Snickers bar around with you in your purse at all times. Stop making excuses. Take personal responsibility for your sin. If you have just one beer and all your inhibitions go out the window, then you have a moral obligation not to drink, ever. 
Maybe it's a moral obligation for you to have a filter on your internet or not to own a tablet or to only use your computer in a public space. Christian, if certain situations or contact with certain people or places perpetually, almost without fail, result in your succumbing to temptation and rebellion, you see the pattern again and again, then avoid them. Don't go there. Make other plans. Stop doing that thing. Don't make provision for sin. It says, Jesus says in Matthew 18, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. Don't be like a a recovering alcoholic, slowly cruising by a bar and, and peering in through the windows, right? Oh, I wonder what's going on in there. I think I'll just go inside and sit down at the bar at the stool and I'll order a Pepsi and we'll just see what happens. No, are you crazy? Run away. Run away. Be like a general who knows the weak part of his defenses. The enemy certainly knows your weaknesses, Christian. Why should he know them more than you? Why are we so foolish? We know there's no lasting joy in defying the living God. We know sin leads to death. We know there is nothing in this world that can compare with the crown of eternal life. But that crown can look so so distant, so theoretical, so abstract, when some tantalizing, sinful tidbit is within our grasp, ready for the taking. And if a person welcomes rather than resists that temptation, desire concedes. And if not turned away immediately, it produces sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Which moves us into our concluding point. Christians should instead acknowledge God as the source of everything good. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, James writes in verse 16. Don't be deceived. Brothers, believers must not think that God himself is tempting us to evil. Right? On the contrary, he's the giver of good gifts to his children. In fact, sending us good gifts, perfect gifts, belongs to God's unvarying nature. Look at verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights which means God is the creator of the lights of heaven. He's talking about the sun, the moon, the stars. He created them all. And the Father of the heavenly lights does not change, like shifting shadows. See, the heavens themselves, they change. The moon waxes and wanes. There are solar eclipses. The course of the stars change position in the night sky, depending on the time of year. But God never changes, ever. We change. Sinful human beings may have uh, double minds and double souls, verse 8. We may be inconsistent and fluctuating in our obedience to God, depending on the season of life. We may be prey to the shifting winds of motive and desire, we saw last week. We may have no fixed belief and direction. Our loyalty to God is constantly threatened with every wind and storm of circumstance, but our Heavenly Father never changes. In the midst of our deepest trial, He is a rock of unchanging purpose and benevolence and love. Malachi 3.6, I am the Lord. I do not change. God is unchanging in his being. He's unchanging in his purposes. He's unchanging in his perfection, unchanging in his compassionate character. 
And as verses 5 and 6 tell us, it's to this unchanging, benevolent, loving, compassionate God to whom we pray in faith in the midst of our trials, to whom we pray for wisdom. Beloved, in the times of deepest affliction, we must remember the character of the God we serve. James says every good and perfect gift comes from him, this unchanging and compassionate one. And the greatest example of God's benevolent, sovereign, unchanging and purposed gift-giving is his regeneration of Christians, his gift of the new birth. This unchanging God, verse 18, chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Christian, are you looking for the outstanding example of your faithful God's loving goodness toward you? Do you want to see the outstanding example of how your heavenly Father has lavished you with a good and perfect gift, even though you may be in the midst of severe tribulation and suffering? Look to your birth through the word of truth the word of the gospel. Look to God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ on your behalf, a redemptive work motivated by his sovereign determination. He chose to give us birth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. God is telling the whole world, do you want to see what I have in store for my fallen creation? Look at the Christians. Look at the members of New City Baptist Church. They're a kind of first fruits, a first installment, and there's, there's going to be more to come. The blessings of my restored creation are already alive amongst them. Alive in them. They are like walking time warps. Do you see how they have been transformed, these weak, fallen creatures blighted by sin and shame? And so I will change all fallen creation. A creation that groans under the sinful curse that Adam brought upon it. And God's will in this matter, in our salvation, in our persevering to the very end, no matter how many trials and tribulations we face, of, of being that foretaste, that down payment, that first fruit, first fruits of a redemptive plan that will eventually encompass all of creation. Brothers and sisters, it is 100% certain It's certain because God's will, unlike the creation he has made, is unvarying, right? The lights of heaven may change, but the father of lights never changes, ever, ever. Oh, brothers and sisters, pray for eyes to see. Pray for wisdom to understand James chapter 1 and to live it. In the midst of our deepest trial, God is a rock of unchanging purpose and love.